Howdy, everyone, and welcome to Moment of Truth, the podcast of American Moment. My name is Saurabh Sharma. I'm the president of American Moment, and I'm joined by Nick Solheim, the COO of American Moment. And we are back in the studio for yet another incredible episode, and one that's been definitely a long time coming. Today on the podcast, we have the great Oren Cass, someone who, if he lived in the swamp full-time, you bet we would have had within the very first 10 episodes. But we finally had him today, and, and we had a, a wide-ranging, long, and hopefully informative episode with him where we talk about everything from private equity to labor to a substantive conservative economics to how do we support families, and how irritating certain hedge fund managers in Washington can be. Uh, before we get to that, however, I uh, just wanted to encourage you guys, as always, to go to AmericanMoment.org and follow us at AMMoment.org on social media platforms to find out everything we're doing. If you had followed us, you would have seen over the last uh, week or two that we had released an event right for a party we just had in Washington, D.C., and uh, we're recording now the morning after. I'm in basically okay condition, but we had 250 people here by uh, the Conservative Partnership, uh, and uh, it was a great time. And uh, if you keep an eye on our social media channels, chances are you can probably sign up for the next one. Well, just to entice them to do that, you got to tell them what it, what drink did we... Ah, yes. So so we like to theme our parties. Um, and so the very first one we did, we did uh, a going away party for, for Mr. Jeff Bezos, where... Uh, we had a, a custom cocktail that was uh, blue that we called uh, Jeff Bezos's Little Blue Juice. And I get credit for coming up with he that. He does. Name, just to be clear. Uh, if you know what that is a reference to, great. If you don't, I'm not going to explain it to you. Um, <laughs> <Google> this one. <laughs> <laughs> or Urban Dictionary. I don't think that it's going to pull anything up. It's it's like a layer of puns. But uh, the one we had yesterday was called Two Scoops for Me, but Not for Thee. Uh, and it uh, the, the graphic for the event had pictures of, of Donald Trump and Joe Biden and aviators, uh, you know, enjoying some ice cream cones. And uh, and the custom cocktail was a combination of vodka, orange soda and ice cream. And it was called Orange Man Good. <laughs> and it was indeed good. Yeah. People really, really seem to like it. So um, we had a good time. Uh, these are actually fairly wholesome affairs. I know a lot of you listening to the podcast care deeply about uh, living out uh, socially conservative lives. Uh, we had a bunch of kids there. There were half a dozen little toddlers and babies running around. It was it's, awesome. Yeah, it was our favorite part of it by far. But uh, it was a great way for us to meet some of you that aren't already sort of in our network, but that we were able to meet and get to know uh, people who have been fans from afar of what we're doing that we want to help and loop into everything that we do. And that's part of the reason we do these events. We want there to be perks for people who get what time it is and who are doing the right stuff to help ensure that the, the public policy that we would like to see implemented at American Moment does, in fact, have that happen. Um, but without further ado, I'm going to read uh, the bio for Oren Cass, our guest today. He's the executive director of American Compass, whose mission is to restore an economic orthodoxy that emphasizes the importance of family, community, and industry to the nation's liberty and prosperity. Before that, he was a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, and then before that, he had written his book in 2018, The Once and Future Worker, A Vision for the Renewal of Work in America, uh, which has been called, and, and we would agree, the essential policy book for our time. Uh, Oren's a friend. Uh, he was uh, a close advisor of ours early on as we were building American Moment. In part, American Moment was inspired by uh, his entrepreneurship in creating American Compass. So we look up to him a lot. Uh, there's stuff from American Compass's website all over Amcanon, and we think that we had an absolutely stellar conversation with him today. 
Yeah, it his book, The Once and Future Worker, is like one of the most deeply radicalizing <laughs> books I've ever read. I mean, I remember when I was first reading it, particularly in the sections about, uh, you know, college and, and how it's kind of sold as this thing that every single person needs to do to be successful. And if not, you're screwed. Um, and, you know, some of Oren's proposals, uh, you know, to the contrary, I'd like read a couple pages and then I have to like, pace in my living room because I was so mad I mean in terms of like deeply radicalizing books I've read it's like um uh Age of Entitlement by Christopher Caldwell and then right after that like the ones of, <laughs> and they're close um so highly recommend that you uh you know order his book and check it out either before or after uh the episode I know we have it on Amcanon um but yeah, it was a it was a it was a great episode today, and I've wanted to have Warren on the show for a long time. And without further ado, we'll go now to Warren Cass. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Warren. Well, thanks guys for having me. We're really excited this could finally happen. Um, we wanted to have you on since the very beginning, but uh, thankfully you live in real America, and it's probably better for your soul because of it. Uh, we always like to ask the same question with our guests. How did you get to the point where you are doing what you do now as the executive director of American Compass? Walk us through, you know, the long train of abuses against the conservative <laughs> movement that you have engaged in. <laughs> well, I was born in Berkeley, California. <laughs> little little known fact. Um, though stayed there not very long. So that that was probably for my own good. Um, I mean, I've always been interested in in public policy and was, was a political economy major at one of the very few places you could be a political economy major in this country, uh, and had sort of started working on on policy issues even when I, I was initially a management consultant, went to law school when everyone else was going to business school, um, became very involved in, uh, in then-Governor Romney's 2008 and then especially 2012 presidential campaign. Um, but I think maybe in part because I was sort of coming up through a, a heterodox path and not the kind of standard conservative ink trajectory, I probably just encountered a lot of ideas from a different angle. And so, you know, I always would have, certainly by the time I got to college, described myself as conservative and, and free market and so on and so forth. But some of the things I was hearing that were just very entrenched dogma kind of struck me as bizarre. And, and the, the, the main pattern that I kept finding over and over again was that it seemed to me that the right of center was choosing to deny that something was a problem rather than acknowledge that a problem existed and then engage with the much more much harder question of, okay, but what can or, or can't anybody do about it? And I saw this on sort of anti-poverty policy. Um, I did a lot of earlier work on climate change where I thought this was a real issue and then ultimately, I found it to be just a problem with how we were thinking about the economy generally, that rising tide lifts all ships clearly just was not empirically true, at least at least at this moment in history. And yet there was such a fear that, well, if, if we admit that, then somehow it's all going to fall apart. And this is this is where we must make our stand. Uh, and, and I just don't think that's true. I think, in fact, it, it should be very fundamental to conservatism and is consistent with you know, a small C conservative outlook to to really start from a clear eyed assessment of problems. E expect that a a free market system is going to generate problems. That markets aren't these 
incredible self-organizing, always well-functioning things, but then also bring real skepticism of, you know, how the public policy process is going to work, a a real commitment that we want a well-functioning market system at the end of the day, and then try to craft public policy on that basis. Did you, was there a particular moment at which it felt like you were in a way a dissident from the the orthodox and the right was there was there one key moment where you realized i i have this fundamental difference with what the rest of the space believes and that's going to put me at odds with them did, did someone else tell you that i mean <laughs> uh, what, what was that moment for you i mean for me i think the issue is probably china mm-hmm. um and we'll probably say china a number of times in this discussion it's really interesting the various ways it it fits into these debates i think very importantly sometimes i'm accused of playing the china card <laughs> like like the, it's not a card it's the major geopolitical and economic de- yeah. development of the last 40 yeah. years um but it, it came up actually a lot in in 2011 and 2012 when i was working for for then governor romney's presidential campaign and we sort of started from okay here's the kind of standard what Republicans say about uh, trade policy materials. And Governor Romney said, <laughs> well, but what are we going to do about China? I was like, well, that's oh, no one's really asked that before. That's that's a really good <laughs> that's a really good question. And, and it sort of sent me off on this odyssey to find, all right, well, where are the thoughtful right of center economists who have really, you know, grappled with what we're going to do about China? And it was just like for for things that diminish the amount of people thoughtful right of center economists who think about china well it, it, it turns out that once you run those filters there isn't a lot in 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 your cup and that just that struck me as bizarre and so you know and, and it wasn't because at each step of the filter it was like well lots of really thoughtful people were explaining why we didn't need to grapple with china it was like well they're just there is no thinking on this um, and so I think we ended up doing a lot of really good and important thinking on it. I think it's it's really striking now to go back to what Romney was saying in 2011-12 and how you see it then echoed in in the best of what Trump brought to, to 2016 and how it now is essentially certainly right of center and, and arguably across the political spectrum consensus, at, at least as, as, as an understanding of the challenge, if not what the right remedy is. Um, but but coming out of that, that then became one of the things when I had a chance to start doing my own writing, that was one of the things I was really excited to write about is is what is it that we think about free trade on the right of center and how do we align that with the reality of how our international economy is working? So I, I was very fortunate to get to write um, a cover story for National Review. This was back in 2014, um, laying out this case. And, and it's funny, I wanted to call it, I sent it in with keeping the economic peace as as the headline, because the basic argument was this is a foreign relations issue and you need deterrence and, and conservatives should recognize the need for deterrence in, in trade policy, just as we do in foreign policy. And then the, the magazine comes out and it's there on the cover with with this knight with a you know American flag plunging a sword into a <laughs> serpent and the title is Fight the Dragon. And I, I guess that's, that's why they're talent that's that's why they're successful magazine editors and i'm not um but but to answer your actual question the moment came when you know they told me this would happen i was excited for this to happen um michael strain at aei and ramesh panaru who i think was already at national review then um were writing a rebuttal in in the next article and so i was especially excited like to see what what their response would be because this just hadn't been a fight that had, had been playing out in this space 
And I remember, you know, it, it hit the it hit the website. I printed it out and pulled out my, you know, I was so excited. I just read it and it was like a foreign language. I mean, those are sharp guys. I, I like both of them a lot. I um, I enjoy talking with them. I like reading what they write. And I was just like, this just makes absolutely no sense to me. I mean, I, you know, I'll, I'll kind of go through and, and now, you know, rebut this, but wow, if, if that's what is sort of still the mainstream conservative view, I'm, uh, I, <laughs> I'm definitely bringing a different perspective to it. Yeah. So let's talk about, um, back up a little bit and talk about American Compass and the work you're doing, uh, for our listeners who don't know, what is it, um, what kind of led you to start it and and how is it set apart from other uh you know economic think tanks on the right well i so we started american compass a little over a year ago right at the beginning of 2020 um and i had been at uh, manhattan institute until then where, where i was i was very happy and it's a, a wonderful place to work and and actually raihan salam who had been my editor for these original National Review pieces. Got his book right on top right there. There you go. Top top book in the pile is um, he had just taken over as president at Manhattan Institute. And in in some respects, that that was a wonderful thing and and I think is is going to be um, wonderful for and, and has been already for, for a lot of the work Manhattan Institute's doing. But it it also in a very concrete way highlighted some of the, the limitations that standard conservative organizations are under with respect to what they can and can't say. And there are some people who's like, oh, like that's because the donors are in control or whatever. And, and I don't think that's that's right at all. I think that's very um, oversimplified. I think it's it's just like in the private sector, you know, a a large corporation can see a disruption coming down the pike, but that doesn't mean it can actually just turn to it. Typically, it, it actually can't because you have an alignment at, at every stage um, within the organization and its relationship with others that you just can't change easily. And so for you know a lot of the, the right of center think tanks, it's yes, absolutely. You have donors who are supporting the organization and, and have a certain perspective. You also have the leadership of the organization that has uh, typically a shared perspective. You have all of the fellows at the organization who, to some extent, have a shared perspective. You have all of the readers of that organization's work. You have you have all the media that that tend to cover that work. You have all of the politicians that are uh, drawing on that work. And so to just say, like, well, here's a better idea. You should do this one instead. Um, of, of course, that's not how it's going to work. And so I was looking around. It was 2019. I, I was doing more and more of this work that that we've just been talking about. We were well into the Trump administration, and it was just stunning to look around and see there are so many individuals in the right of center who are doing really interesting work in a lot of places. And and I would have liked to think I was somewhere in that group. And yet, if you zoom out and look at the the level of institutions, you see nothing. You you see a, a group that looks essentially unchanged from pre-Trump and whose entire strategy is pretty much, well, if we just keep our heads down until this Trump thing ends, like we can go right back to what we were doing before. Um, and and that just struck me as, as fundamentally unhealthy. And so um, we started American Compass basically to provide a, a flagship for this different way of thinking. And, you know, when there's such a huge white space you can you can be very small but but if you if you plant your flag there you actually you command a lot of territory um and and so you know the mission of american compass is is to restore an economic consensus that emphasizes the importance of family community 
and industry to the nation's liberty and prosperity. Uh, and and the, the basic thrust of our argument is that if you were to actually apply conservative principles to contemporary problems, you would not land on the libertarian market fundamentalism that now characterizes the right of center. I mean, when, when someone says conservative economics in American politics, that conjures Nikki Haley's tweet that tax cuts are always a good idea. There, <clears throat> there are times when tax cuts are a good idea. By the way, in 1980, when this was first becoming the Republican focus, uh, tax cuts were probably a good idea. But we have, I think, forgotten so many of the things that that are important to, to the well-being of the nation generally and that we need to include in our analyses of economic issues. Um, and and our goal is to to bring that back to the table. So one of the things our, our producers wanted us to do was for each of us to define what this new perspective uh, on the, the conservative realignment, the new right is, and, and what its main tenets are. Now, it seems like you echoed some of those themes in, in the mission statement of American Compass, but I guess restate what is it that you think characterizes this resurgent um, interest uh, on the right in the in the ideas you're talking about what are its its main tenets what what, did it, what does it want to focus on what does it mean to you well I I think in one sentence it would be that markets are a means and not an end um, and I, I think that's really important both politically and substantively and and politically and in understanding how, uh, it sort of informs this idea of realignment that's going on. I think it's really interesting just to step back and see how the existing right-of-center coalition really came together at a time when markets were delivering the outcomes that conservatives really valued. In the 60s and into the 70s, um, the, the free market seemed to just be this extraordinary engine of middle-class prosperity. And so you actually, in fact, did have these groups that saw things the same way. Libertarians were extremely fired up about the power of free markets for one set of reasons. Conservatives obviously care about individual liberty and, and our skeptical government power and, and want markets at the, at the base of the economy as well. But we're ultimately as excited as libertarians because it was actually fostering the the substantive end that that conservatives were passionate about and that worked great for a long time but i think over the last 15 or 20 years it really has not i mean if you think about for the the post-cold war generation the first of all you have a democratic party that's also quite pro-market i mean if bill clinton now they're obviously starting to move away from that but to the extent that a bill clinton or barack obama is your quintessential democrat you're not really fighting about markets very much at all anymore. And then meanwhile, you have China's entry into the global economy and all the effects of that. Um, you have the great, you have the financial crisis and the incredibly slow economic recovery from that. You have the rise of tech in its current form. And so you, you reach this moment where I think conservatives are looking at this and saying like, wow, gosh, what are we, what are we going to do about this? And libertarians are saying, well, what do you mean? What are we going to do about this? We we thought we were all in agreement that that this is just how it is, and it turns out these two groups don't actually agree about this. And so, for conservatives, I think it's incredibly important to to both remain committed to the free market and recognize that the goal is a well functioning market system, and that that is going to benefit people in a way that, um, particularly, sort of more 
publicly driven uh, economic activity cannot. Um, but recognize that that's a system that requires rules, that we're not all just sort of encountering each other in the in the forest and, you know, trading sticks for berries or yeah. whatever, that that for a modern that's market. That's private equity. And, <laughs> that's right. It's just this pre-political leveraged buyout. What are you talking about? Um, that the actual economic arrangements we have, if we want them to serve and advance a flourishing nation with all the things we care about, and that comes down first and foremost to the, the health of our institutions, both formal and informal, um, to to a system that is is supporting flourishing communities. Um, the market's not going to do that itself. And so finding solutions that make markets work better is something that the left doesn't talk about a whole lot, obviously. But the, the conventional right doesn't like to talk about because that act, you have to admit that that markets don't always work great, and and I think that's the heart of, of what conservatives need to lead on. Nick, what do you think it means? Oh boy, <laughs> I was wrestling with this question before uh, Emma handed me these notes. Um, I think that as time has gone on, I mean, as, especially since the fifties and sixties, we've had this kind of you know, the boomers prospered. They did, you know, relatively well. Um, and kind of the the angst that I've been feeling when talking to the boomers. I mean, I have several boomers in my family. <laughs> There's this kind of unease about, like, what the country is now and what it means and how everyone's going to survive. So, like, as an example, you have, you know, a prosperous boomer who lived a good life, lives in a nice house, has two cars, you know. But they're starting to realize, okay, you know, my kids, the the Gen Xers, had it a little harder. Um, you know, they, they both had to work. They had to put their kid through daycare. Um, you know, they couldn't just do a one-worker household like I had. Um, so that's kind of weird, but hopefully next generation it'll get figured out. And then now you get to millennials and Gen Z, which is us, and, you know, I know I've said it on the show before, but I'm getting married in September. So uh, I'm like thinking through, hey, how do we, you know, buy a house and plan for a future where we want to have kids and my soon to be wife, you know, hopefully uh, can be able to take care of those kids and not have to work a job and realizing, oh, unless you make six figures, that's like literally not possible um, if you live anywhere near a metropolitan area. Yeah, I mean, it's it's fundamentally a, a discomfort with the status quo, whereas in the right. 50s and 60s, the status quo was the thing that conservatives were protecting because it was pretty good. Um, well, right, and, it, and that's the thing. Like, they're still prospering from it, but in their kids and in their grandchildren, they're seeing like, wait a minute, this, this thing that worked really well for me is not working for them, but they don't know why, and they yeah. don't know like what should be done about it yeah although can i make a really important point about well i think it's an important point about about conservatism and and the idea of sort of conserving because i think it's it's a a big mistake that we make within conservatism to think that what the term means is like okay we now have to go identify the specific things about the world today that we are conserving or else some particular thing at some point in the past that we want to return to, or like we have to prove that this is what the founders thought, right? Mm -hmm. And to be clear, I think those are all very important inquiries and, and should inform us meaningfully, but that's not what conservative means any more than what liberal means is like, 
okay, well, then we have to go find things to liberal about, right? <laughs> like, it happens that that's the term we use for reasons three or 400 years old. But the, the core of conservatism, I think, is a set of substantive commitments to things. Um, it, it is this recognition that institutions and relationships are, are the sort of actual indivisible unit of the healthy society. It's a sort of skepticism, frankly, of human nature and the idea that, or, or rather it's a recognition of the reality of human nature and a skepticism that you can just change that into something that might be more convenient through either cultural or political mechanisms. Um, and so, you know, I always just go all the way back to Edmund Burke, who simultaneously was extremely supportive of the American Revolution and opposed the French Revolution. Not because there was some principle that revolutions are good or bad, but because he was actually looking at, okay, what are the relative institutions um, that are either being sort of buttressed and strengthened or reinforced through this process or are being torn down? And so, you know, in, in our current moment, it strikes me as, as incredibly important to to not sort of feel some pressure to point at some point in the past that we think kind of like we're, we're going to go back to or is right, which, uh, you know, for one thing, is just sort of a political loser, I think, and, and also just a way that opponents within the right of center can kind of very cleverly kind of frame arguments. But instead to say, no, no, conservatism is a lens through which we understand the world around us and the problems we face. And it gives us a, a heuristic for answering questions. And by the way, it's not always right. One thing I emphasize is if we just said everyone was conservative and conservatives did whatever they want, like you'd have a very dysfunctional society in its own right. What you need is a healthy push and pull in politics between conservatives bringing that lens and, and progressive liberals who are kind of always asking why things can't be different and, and looking at things that they that that should and, and do need to change. And and I think where we've gone so wrong over the last 40 years, it, conservatives really just sort of absented themselves from that conversation, at, at least in the economic world. Um, and, and all of our economic thought just played out in this very narrow channel between your sort of right liberal libertarians and your left liberal progressives um, who, who really just do not pay attention to a lot of things that really matter. Yeah, this this I think is the best framework to understand it. And it it also helps appreciate and understand the achievements of conservatives in the United States over the last 50 years, while also recognizing why um, that perspective may have limited utility now without saying that they have always been wrong, which is that the challenges and the threats to those first order societal goods that conservatives should be protecting, things like family, um, sovereignty, uh, you know, uh, the dignity of work and so on, uh, those things had different threats to them in the 1980s, the 1970s, the 1960s than they do today. And if conservatives are to be useful to the United States, useful to the country and useful in political discussions, they should approach those uh, those threats with different solutions. The, the threats that, that we think about a lot basically come under three categories. Uh, the civilizational crises facing the country. The first being the cratering rates of family formation uh, in the United States, you know, marriage and fertility rates plummeting off a cliff. I mean, you don't have a country if you don't have people, period. Uh, and, and certainly, you know, importing a surf underclass from the third world isn't going to help solve that problem either. Um, the second is the complete disillusion of, of any sense of national solidarity in the country, whether it's cultural or a byproduct of um, 
of uh, of a porous immigration regime or uh, um, you know a sort of you can even bring in other issues that are contemporary like critical race theory or big tech or the effects that technology has on on social functioning and and then the last is is what you mentioned which is that there is an actual regime level threat that the United States is facing that's probably more dangerous than the Soviet Union ever was and that's the the People's Republic of China. And so the the solutions that we meet those with uh, can still be substantively conservative while being very different solutions than they were when Ronald Reagan was president. And um, and and I think that that's uh, what American Compass is bringing to the table. And I, I want to dive into some of the specific areas now. Uh, one of the ones that that you guys recently uh, have, have put out is as an answer to to the first threat that I mentioned, which is, or at least in part an answer to it, which is the cratering rates of family formation in this country. Tell us about what the issues uh, with American family formation are right now and what the the FISC, the, the solution that American Compass has proposed is. Sure. I mean, I think the the, the challenge, is, as you laid out, is is very straightforward. It's these things are in decline. And it's it's interesting, actually, to look at the way the, the crises are so different, again, than in the past, right? We used to be worried about the very high divorce rate and the very high sort of teen pregnancy, unwed mother rate. Um, and now, instead, we have a problem of people not getting married in the first place. So I've said, well, the divorce rate is down. And I said, well, that's true, but yeah. people are not getting married in the first place. Yeah. And well, you know, teen pregnancy is down. And, and that's that's obviously a good thing. Um, but it is of a piece of, of this broader just decline in infertility overall. And so it's it's, it's really interesting, I think, ju- just to start from noting that while conservatives were concerned about family issues in the past, rightly, and are concerned about family issues today, rightly, the, real wor- the, the world is different. There is a new context in which we have to think about these things. And the question of, of why this is happening, I think, is, is so important and something that I, I don't think we have a very good theory of yet. And and I mean we in all those senses. I mean kind of – I don't think America has kind of a, a real theory of what's going on here. I, I don't think the academics have sort of produced a, a compelling explanation. I, I don't think American Compass has sort of said, here you go. This is this is exactly what's going on. It's it's obviously a sort of confluence of, of some factors that are very cultural to some extent, you, you see people delaying marriage. You see people understanding what it means to be married differently. Um, some of it is economic and comes down to it, what is the economic basis of marriage. And that, that has always been central to it. And the extent to which we are sustaining or reinforcing that versus letting that dissolve. Um, and then the same when it goes to having kids. I mean, the, the decision to have kids, I think, is is in a sense the, the biggest decision that, that people make in their lives in, in many respects. It's going to have more effect on, on their own life, really, than, than almost anything. And obviously, it is literally the, the creation of new lives. And so I, I don't think we should sort of glibly or casually um, say, like, well, it, you know, it comes down to this economic data point or, well, it's because of this cultural trend. I, I think it's extraordinarily complex and, and so I think, one, it's just important to talk about it as a problem. And and right off the bat, that's actually a place where you already have a division. Like, I have to be honest, it sounds like just extraordinary common sense to be like, well, obviously, if people feel like they shouldn't or can't get married or don't want to or shouldn't or can't and don't want to have kids, like, 
yes, that is obviously prima facie a uh, uh, catastrophe for, <laughs> for for any society. I mean, oh my God, yeah. what's going on? It seems to me the that the certainly the the progressive um, conventional wisdom is like either hey, no big deal, or even like yeah, liberation somehow. Um, and then even on the the sort of mainstream right of center, I think you see a lot of folks kind of making this argument that like, well, this is just people's preferences and, you know, this is the market facilitates people's preferences and whatever they choose to do is by definition them optimizing among their options and therefore whatever it is that people are doing is sort of the best world we could have. Um, so just having the fight at that level, I think, is actually incredibly important, both as a starting point for debate, but then also as a follow on into the cultural side of things. There's a circle here where the fact that people are like, oh, that's cool or actually that's great. Obviously, that influences the decisions that people make. And and we should be cognizant of that and recognize that that's part of the debate to be having. Um, but then secondly, from a sort of hard policymaking perspective, I just think it's really important to think at the margin and to not evaluate policies based on like, will this or will this not solve the problem, but rather ask, will this make things better or make things worse? Right. And so that's where I think this kind of debate about family or child benefits and, and something like our Fisk proposal, um, you know, you have Senator Romney's Family Security Act, you have what the Biden administration is doing with the child tax credit. Um, you have the Rubio Lee proposal, you have the Hawley proposal. All of these have have an idea in common, which is, gosh, we really need to get more resources to families with kids. Um, and I think that's correct. And th there's a promising, I think, alignment uh, between left and right on that point. Um, and there are a whole bunch of reasons we need to do it. I, I don't think that you're going to sort of see the you know birth rate surge back up or marriage rates surge back up with the kinds of financial incentives we could or should plausibly put in place. I'm not actually sure it even is especially healthy to kind of try to craft policy in terms of, uh, well, we're kind of going to create this incentive for you to make this you know fundamental decision about your family. That being said, we can make it easier for people to have families, and we can, by doing that, also reinforce this commitment that there is something important and valuable there. Um, and, and so I think it's important to do that. I think a key distinction among these different proposals is to whom do you provide that benefit? And what you see in, in the approach that the Biden administration has taken is that this should just go literally to everybody. Um, it, it is an unconditional payment. Um, I think that's a mistake and goes too far. Um, I think a, a healthy welfare state and a healthy system of social insurance and social support has a concept of reciprocity and expects that people also be doing something uh, to support themselves to the extent they can. And so what we've proposed with the FISC is to say, you know, we're not going to have these welfare-style work requirements. We're not going to have this tax system where we calculate, well, how much should you pay in taxes? And that's how much you can have back. Um, but we are going to have some basic requirement that your household be connected to the workforce. And we're just it's a very easy way to do that, which is just see how much money you earned last year. And if you earned even, you know, a, a part-time minimum wage job, let's try to get you that support. If your household has literally no connection to the workforce, 
Um, we still have a safety net for you. We need to find ways to help you. But let's clarify that that kind of assistance is different from the sort of social compact we want to build for families that that are engaged healthily. So I have uh, I was mentioning earlier some some like married friends with kids who whose like main political inclination right now is just, you know, what can help me support my family? And a couple of them just was it last week or maybe two weeks ago, got their first, you know, Biden child tax credit. Can you walk us through what, if any, you know, issues you have with 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 that program in particular and how American Compass's proposal differs? Well, so there are some very technical problems with it that I think are being widely appreciated now, which is that the way that its value is calculated and the way it's administered through the IRS is just sort of a mess. And so, among other things, I think, and, and this goes for policymakers generally, and, and especially in the right of center, we have to get out of this idea that everything is tax policy. Um, tax policy is tax policy, <laughs> and you need good tax policy. We could talk about tax policy, but sending money to families with kids is not tax policy. Um, it is a benefit that looks a lot like Social Security and, and should be run the way Social Security is run. So there are those kinds of technical differences. Um, the the biggest difference then beyond that is um, we disagree with the idea that it should be sent to families that are earning no money whatsoever, that, that just do not have an adult in the household connected to the workforce in any way. And the striking thing is that the Biden administration kind of agrees with us on this. So it's actually very funny if, if you go to, for instance, you know, the, the fancy website the White House has set up to raise awareness about this and connect. It uses the phrase working families five times in the first three <laughs> paragraphs. Um, now, there's obviously a political reason they've chosen to do that. But at the end of the day, you can't trumpet the key benefit of your plan is that you're slashing child poverty in half by providing a benefit to households that have no income of their own, but then also not be willing to say that that's what you're doing or tell them about it, right? Like, first of all, just as a matter of political sustainability, your solution shouldn't be one that you can't talk about because it's so unpopular. Um, and then also as a practical moment, you in fact are not going to succeed in reaching those people if you can't talk loudly and publicly that it's it's what you're doing. And that's what the data shows. They're, they're completely failing to reach those um, households Again, in part because they're not willing to say that that's what they're doing. And so um, partly I just think we should be honest about this. And if if the Democratic view is a good way to fight poverty is simply to send money to people and ta-da, now you are not poor anymore. And we we proudly advocate that view. Let them do that. And let's and and I can see people supporting that and we can have that debate. I think to the extent that the debate in America, we're between something like the Biden proposal and something like the Fisk. And we said, look, we agree on sending this to working families. Now let's talk about if this is also what you want to send to non-working families. I'm pretty sure, and the Biden White House's behavior suggests, that the Fisk would win in a landslide. And so that being said, that would require the right of center to decide it wants to do that <laughs> and not say, well, we're going to challenge the Biden plan with we don't need to do anything. Um, and if and if that's what the right of center comes up with, then the Biden approach may very well win the day. Yeah. So I think that there's a, a framework that I'm thinking through on, on which to understand these different proposals. And I think it goes something like 
what counts as a family? Um, what does that family have to be doing? How much money do they get? And how long do they get it? And and I think that there are deep epistemological questions that underpin each of those. And I want to start with what is a family? Um, how do you guys think about it, American Compass, and, and how do different policy proposals think about what constitutes a family? Like, is it a single mother? Is it, you know, uh, two men that are gay married? Is it, you know, three people living in a polycule? I mean, what, what, what is it? What does that include? Well, in, in our mind, it's, it's fundamentally a, a benefit tied to the child. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the premise is that if you are raising a child, um, that is important and obviously very expensive thing to be doing. It is drawing away from your own capacity to work and earn. It's probably happening at a stage in your life where you're not in a position to have been, you know, saving for and preparing for it. Um, And so it makes sense to basically have a social insurance system that says we pull resources forward to families like that, that people who are successful are essentially going to have to pay back later in life. Um, So... In, in my mind, the fight to be had is not about what is the f- structure around the child necessarily. Um, we put a, a, a small marriage bonus in our proposals. We said if the parents are married, the, the um, benefit should be 20% higher, um, which again, I don't think is sort of going to fundamentally change the way people think about marriage, but at the margin, I think asserts that um, Part of what we would like to see in people fulfilling their part of the social compact is certainly working to support themselves. It's also providing a, a two-parent home for the for the children. Um, you know, obviously, you have pr- proposals that go far beyond that, and, and you could structure them in all sorts of ways. The only one that that I'm aware of right now that that takes a dramatically different view in focusing on the the structure around the child is um, is the Holly proposal, which is is literally twice as large if you're married. Um, and there there are benefits and also costs, I think, to to structuring something that way. Um, but but in general, it seems to me that that has not been the sort of the heart of the of the debate over the different options. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's a fair point, but then that gets to what the family should be doing. Uh, and I get the the work requirement here. So in an event where there is a child, a single child, let's say that they're pretty young, under the age of three perhaps, uh, that's being raised by a single mother, I have a little bit of a hard time justifying to myself why it needs to be affirmatively the case that that woman, before that child is ever off to school, needs to be working to be eligible for a a family benefit proposal or a child benefit proposal properly understood. Walk me through how you guys think about that. Well, first of all, let's be clear that the the amount that we're saying she would need to be working to to earn the full credit is roughly 25 or 30 hours a week at the minimum wage. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I, I think to some extent where the right of center has kind of taken this view that, well, you know, work is the way you you advance and therefore more work is always better. And so, you know, how do you get, 
you know, that person taking a second job. And right. Like, I, I don't think that's right. I think having three overtime jobs is literally the American dream, as I, some have said before. I'm, I'm not sure that that's quite right. <laughs> I, I think we should obviously have incredible admiration for for people who who are putting in that effort. But in terms of the sort of trade offs that public policy should be putting its, their, the, the weight behind, I think it's recognizing that when you have a single parent, you have an inherently more difficult situation with sharper trade-offs. Um, and so the question is, well, what do you want to do in, in balancing those trade-offs? And I think at one extreme saying, well, then that's it. Um, you know, you're just gonna have to work three jobs. Who knows? I don't think that's especially good for anyone. But I think the other extreme of saying, uh, well, gosh, that looks like a, a difficult situation. So how do we ameliorate it so there are as few costs related to it as possible? Um, is is bad policy broadly from an incentive perspective, right? Ch choices do have consequences. Um, it's bad from a cultural signaling perspective. Um, and, and I don't think ultimately it's good for that family, for that child. I, I don't think there or... <clears throat> Uh, for the parent to just say, um, well, let's try to get you enough resources that you don't need to do anything to support yourself for an extended period of time. And and the last thing I would say about it is I think we tend to sort of get into this kind of elite bubble where it's like, well, how is she going to afford the, you know, daycare to, to go and take that job? The reality is that most, you know, lower to middle income income households are not using formal paid childcare programs anyway. That's 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 not the default or the norm. Um, there are so many other sort of systems of care, extended family, neighborhood. Again, if you're talking about working 25 or 30 hours a week, it is perfectly plausible for two friends to trade off those those periods of time in a very regular, you know, reasonable work week. Um, and and again, from the perspective of, of what we are going to support and, and avoid trade-offs on versus accept that there are trade-offs, look, if you're a single parent, um, you're probably going to need some support from extended family of some sort. I, I think that's a, a reality that, again, conservatives should say uh, is, is actually the kind of constraint that is healthy in a society, not that we should be looking for government to, to step in and, and remove the need for. So aside from, you know, some of these different, uh, you know, child tax credit proposals, what are some other family-oriented, you know, pieces of legislation or, or policies that you'd like to see um, conservatives get in front of uh, and, and, you know, start having good ideas about that they're not doing right now? Well, to start by coming back to the the child credit for just a minute, there are a whole bunch of policies around child care and paid leave and so forth that I think are not good. And that one of the nice things about a child benefit is that it substitutes for. So I, I think you see a tendency on the sort of more technocratic right of center to say like, well, we want to be pro-market and limited government. But we also don't want to look like we're, you know, not addressing these various concerns. So we probably do have to offer some sort of childcare support and then also mandate paid leave. And that's kind of going to be our compassionate middle ground. And honestly, that's the worst of all worlds, because what you're basically doing is saying, OK, we're going to 
try to provide support, but only for this very narrow track that mandates a set of decisions and that provides support only if you were in the workforce, then are out of the workforce for exactly this amount of time, and then go back into the workforce. Um, one of the really nice things about child benefit proposals is they ameliorate all of that, right? If you uh, would like to use these resources for childcare so you can go back to work, you're certainly free to do that. If you need to take more time off from work or want to take more time off from work, you're free to do that. One important thing about the FISC is it's looking at prior earnings. So if you take time off in that first year after the child is born, that you don't lose the benefit for that. It's it's if for years on end you're not, no one in your household is connected to work that that you would lose the benefit. Um, and, and so I think that's just a, a much better model, both both to answer the left of centers sort of, well, here's a solution to every specific problem that we consider cognizable, um, and 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 is just a more natural place for for the right of center to go on a lot of these issues. In terms of other policies, I think two that come to mind um, that are incredibly important and and go straight to this question of of cost. Um, one is around housing, and one is around education. Um, and and this thing emphasize, you know, I do a lot of work on like what is the actual cost of living for a family, and um, hey, wages really haven't kept up with that. And one piece of that is obviously an economic critique that we need to get wages growing faster. But equally important is like, wow, some of these things have gotten really expensive and policy could address that as well. Um, and so th there is no question in my mind that that the way that we regulate housing um, is artificially and painfully suppressing the supply of, of affordable housing for families. And that is something that the the normie right of center is absolutely correct about and that we should have no compunction agreeing with them on. Like, I think there's a real unfortunate way that the desire to find contrast leads to people who should be allies on a subject just to be like, well, if they are saying that, then we should at least not say that or maybe say not that. Yeah. Whereas we should say like, hey, yeah, like this housing, like zoning as it works today is terrible. Like, same thing, like occupational licensing. If that's like your key reform to save America, I'm not especially sympathetic, but occupational licensing reform would be a good idea. Um, so housing, I think, is one piece of it. And then on the education side, I think it's really important to understand the way our our system that emphasizes college for all and emphasizes college as, as the natural endpoint for everyone is really corrosive to family in a few ways. One, just the the cost it imposes. And people say, oh, well, after all the subsidies and whatever else, it's not that expensive. Um, first of all, yes, it is. <laughs> and, uh, and, and second of all, you know, people don't really have a good understanding of what um, those costs are. And, and it feels like an enormous pressure and cost. Um, but secondly, just the model of, okay, the way we define success is your high school prepares you to kind of go somewhere else for college so that you can then go work in some city in a place where, among other things, it's not affordable to raise a family um, is just really destructive. And and there are some people who it works well for. They tend to be the people who then steer national discussions about policy. Uh, but for most people, I don't think it's working at all. And so saying that, yes, that should be a path. I'm not here to say you can't do that. But the kind of platonic ideal that we have in our head and that policy supports should be one that says, first of all, our public education system is one that prepares people to find good jobs and 
lead good lives, typically where they already are, which is typically where they want to be. Um, and then the sort of support we provide for people beyond that is at least neutral to continuing on that kind of track. And if anything, sort of leans in favor of it. Um, I think both of those things would do a huge amount both to relieve pressure on families today and to create an, an environment more conducive to family. Mm. Education is is obviously deeply tied into the way we think about the American workforce and and the family ultimately has has a lot to do with that as well. One of the things that you've gotten into some trouble uh, about and uh, occasionally I get angry emails of people complaining saying Oren's crazy if he thinks that unions are good is is the issue of labor. Um, what is it that conservatives get wrong about labor? What is it that, that liberals in the United States get wrong about labor? And, and what is the substantive vision that you see moving forward that, that could potentially restore power to American workers in a way that they don't currently have? Well, I'm thrilled to hear that our work is generating complaints to other people. Yeah. That's <laughs> that's really when you've made it. And, yeah. and I should say to all your listeners, you know, any complaints you have about American Compass's work, um, please feel free to tell Sarah about <laughs> at any time. Yeah. Um, his his lines are open. Um, yeah, the labor issue one is uh, is is really interesting in my mind. Um, you know, kind of the way in in that I was saying China sort of is such a great lens to challenge orthodoxies and ask, well, why do we think what we do? I think labor is as well, because if if you actually step back and think just hypothetically about what do we mean when we talk about organized labor and the idea that workers should be have some means to come together in support of each other and exert more power vis-a-vis capital in the labor market and have more voice in the workplace, if I describe in those terms... I think conservatives should be extremely excited about that. And if you go back to, you know, like Robert Nisbet writing about Quest for Community in the 50s, he would have said, like, look, labor is the quintessential institution um, that's that's underpinning healthy communities even before you get to um, their their economic role. If you think about what brought down the Soviet Union, it's actually really interesting to remember how central labor was and, you know, solidarity in in Poland in particular as a bulwark for free markets against communism. Um, And so it it seems to me that 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 construct that we should want workers to have power in the labor market, um, be able to and and by default find themselves um, in collaboration with each other, that has that has then huge substantive benefits for the the policy outcomes conservatives care about. So so first of all, if, if you want an economy that's generating widespread prosperity, spoiler, market doesn't just automatically do that. And we have seen in recent decades, uh, it is not doing that. Uh, and you know, oh yes, we can redistribute the money and so forth. But but that's exactly the point. You you really have two choices. Either you need to make sure you have an economy where workers have a relatively high level of power vis-a-vis employers to ensure that that the prosperity that the economy generates reaches them, uh, or you can use government to redistribute. It seems to me that conservatives should have a very obvious preference among those. Now, you'll have like the extreme libertarians who are like, well, I want to do neither, and I don't think inequality matters. And, and that's fine. They can be in that corner, but it's like a very small, lonely corner, and it is certainly not conservative in any meaningful way. Um, I think secondly, when you think about how we're going to govern the workplace 
and and I don't mean that in the sense of political control of. I mean a workplace is its own little society that requires governing in a sense. Um, we have to choose how we're going to want to do that. And again, you can say, well, I it's it's the employer's workplace, so he should just do whatever he wants. Um, but that's not something anyone has seriously thought is a good model for the labor market since certainly before the the Great Depression. Um, and so again, you have a choice. By by default, you're going to end up with government regulation. One of the really nice things about um, worker power and voice in the workplace is that the parties can actually work things out between them. And this is what you see in Europe. You actually see, um, in many cases, the, the left of center and labor asking government to. You don't have to. Get, you don't have to get into this. This is our job to to work this out with management. Uh, and and there's a very sort of corrosively symbiotic relationship between the way the rise in employment law in America has given labor unions much less of use to do, and conversely, then the decline of labor unions has made it necessary, certainly from the political perspective, to do ever more regulation. So. Who's going to make the? Who's going to decide how the workplace runs? Would you rather have workers able to work that out with employers, or would you like government to do it? And I think I know what conservatives want. And then thirdly, just in that broader community context, labor is such a valuable um, force for community, uh, and I think its decline uh, is is very closely tied in a causal way to the declines that we have seen in the health of working class communities. So. You know, it's fine to like sit on think tank panels and talk about how like civil society is important and you need more community. But then it's like, OK, but is is there anything you can do? And I'll be the first to say, like, there are a lot of levers you can't really pull like a big, you know, grant program for this or that isn't going to be what brings back community. But making sure we have a healthy system of organized labor is a policy question and, and would make a difference. And so. That's why we talk about it a lot and why I think it should be so central to the conservative project to just hit the last little piece of your question. That being said, we obviously have a huge problem with the way organized labor functions in America today and how its relationship with left of center politics is bad for the country, bad for the economy, and, and frankly, bad for workers. And so that's the question is how do you how do you advance some alternative that could actually undermine um, what is not healthy in the existing system, um, but not in not in the what I think has been the right of center's view of like, well, yay, let's like it'll just collapse and that's better, but in service to actually building something that 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 works better. Right. This is a great example of where people don't actually read what you write and just like see the headline. It's like orange for unions. And it's and then you see a video of, you know, some union leader uh, who's like raising a, a fist and, you know, saying, you know, solidarity with the, the communists in Cuba and just like silly stuff. I mean, it seems like a lot of American unions have been captured by the same sort of professional managerial class left of left to center interests um, that every other institution in American life has. And so this the kind of the the status quo anti mentality that we have, you know, these these steel workers coming together and collectively bargaining for a safe workplace is not really how it's working anymore. Um, but I uh, so what is the the version of that that would be healthier and it, it, the the challenge i see is that the american system the kind of nlrb system of unionization is so broken that it would have to be essentially torn down completely and reconstructed whole cloth 
along the lines of something like sectoral bargaining and getting from A to B seems like a huge political lift. I mean, do, do you see kind of transitionary measures that can improve that status quo? Well, so I don't agree it needs to be torn down completely because for better or for worse, it has torn itself down, mm-hmm. right? I mean, if, if you know, 40% of the private sector were unionized and like, yeah, it, it would be hard to say like, well, we're just going to blow that up and replace with something else. Kind of like saying like, well, most people have private sector health insurance that they're happy with, but we're just going to, you know, <laughs> blow that up and, and build a new one. Like, it's hard hard to see getting from here to there. Um but the reality is that in, in the private sector, at least, um, labor has become, for the most part, economically irrelevant. I mean, roughly 6% of, of the private sector workforce is unionized. Most of that is legacy. The share of workers who actually voted for a, a union that they're part of is, is, of course, much lower. Very high concentrations in the journalism sector, and that's about and, it. <laughs> well, and, and to the extent like that you see like you know, like signs of life, it's like at Vox and you're like, okay, well, I'm not, you know, I'm, you could look at that different ways, I think. Um, and, and so it seems to me, at least substantively, it's, it's not about tearing anything down at all. In fact, a, a healthier system would be perfectly compatible with the existing NLRA. If, if a group of workers wants to organize an NLRA union, I don't think we need to sort of cross that off the list of options necessarily. Um, but it has already been fading toward irrelevance. And, and one of the reasons labor leaders are so resistant to any proposed reform is they know that as soon as you offer alternatives, that it's just gonna fit, it's just gonna go to zero. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the question is how do you construct alternatives? And the nice thing is that if you're not trying to do it in parallel to tearing something down, you can be a lot more gradual about it, right? So I we're going through a kitchen renovation at, at my house at the moment and you only have one kitchen in your house, yeah. and especially if you have young kids and no kitchen, like you're like, but like this needs to happen quick. <laughs> this needs to happen quickly, like all at once today. Yeah. Um, but if 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 you're building a new kitchen, <laughs> you you can you can take a little bit more time. And so it, it seems to me that um, the way that we need to think about labor is think about all of the different dimensions on which we could start to be doing something new and different. So. Um, you know, you mentioned sectoral bargaining. I think sectoral bargaining is a, a really important concept. It's also, and, and again, this is where conservatives will differ from progressives, it's not something you put in place with a 3,000-page bill. If you look at where it works well, um, particularly in Europe, it is a function of institutions and relationships and trust that evolve and, and, and a sense of obligation by each party to the others and, and to the broader industry and to the nation. It is something that builds up over decades. Um, and so the question should be, well, where could you start? And there are a lot of places you could start. So there are some industries that desperately need better worker representation and have never had and are not susceptible to standard organizing. So like gig work is an obvious example. Instead of doing AB5 in California, and instead of conservatives responding with like, what are you talking about? Uber is the future of work. Um, Republicans must be the party of Uber. (laughs) It's, you know, look, there there are some cool things about Uber, but this is a perfect example where, like, you know, it would be really cool is if you had Uber with some sort of worker power, right? Like, that would be the conservative vision. Um, and so this is a perfect place where you'd say, like, well, there's nothing there now. It's a, it's, it's a small part of the economy today. It's something where there's going to be some sort of regulatory policy response. Uh, among others, the platforms would probably prefer a system that actually let them work it out with workers that actually had uh, 
an ability to represent and voice their interest. Now, they might not recognize that to the extent they think they're going to get away with just, well, there just won't be any regulation. We'll just keep spending like we did in AB5 in California. Um, but if, if one could persuade them like, no, no, there's going to be something, uh, then that becomes a very appealing option. So that's like a really interesting place to sort of start. And to the extent you see the economy also moving more in that kind of direction, well, now you have a natural um, uh, infrastructure in which to, to build that. Um, another example is you just pick an issue. So like weight, like minimum wage, $15 an hour minimum wage is a, is a very bad idea. That being said, I think we've seen that at the margin, minimum wage increases that are consistent with the general wage levels in a local economy can make a big difference for low wage workers with not a lot of negative drag on the economy and or their own opportunities. And, and so I think what that should tell you is we need flexible local ways to set minimum wages. Um, well, gosh, well, <laughs> that sounds like something that conservatives could be offering in lieu of like, well, we just think there should be no minimum wage. Um, and so that I think is a really interesting place to go. And, th and then the last thing I think that's really interesting to consider is that I think this is something that sort of at the local level, you could see a, like a red state governor, for instance, really taking very seriously because you could pick sort of local service industries where you're not really in competition. You know, the, the janitors aren't going to go to a different state, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. And you could say, you know, hey, look, you've got the federal government doing all these things. What if instead there was essentially a, a waiver infrastructure that said, you know, and the federal government would have to create policy to support this um, if we put an actual sectoral bargaining structure in place that, that meets certain requirements? Um, that's actually an alternative to or release valve from stuff we don't like coming from Washington. Um, so all these ways, I think, are, are ways you start and build and evolve over time. And our system will, will not ever look like, oh, like that system off the shelf that we need to put in place here. Um, but there's a ton we can do. And, and just to highlight one last piece um, that, that's in kind of a totally different area is, is as you move to, for instance, a sectoral bargaining structure, one thing you realize is that unions aren't something you fight about in the workplace. Right now in America, it's we're going to have an organizing campaign. The employer is going to resist because it's bad for business and we're going to have a vote and it's 50 percent plus one or 50 percent minus one. And then now I'm in a union or I'm not in a union. Really, really bad system. Not the way most of the world does it. Unions should be organizations in civil society, fundamentally, that people join because they provide things of value. And there are so many things of value that unions could be providing um, in terms of, of training. And, and the best unions in America, like the, um, the building trades, do this very well. It's part of the business model for the industry. Um, in some European countries, unions are the key provider of some social benefits, like an insurance benefits. You could start to get around some of the problems with employer-provided health insurance without going to a government-provided system if it was your worker-led organization for your industry that provided health insurance to the people in the industry, right? That's a much more stable and healthy way, I think, to get insurance. And so... Um, creating and, and there are all sorts of you know technical federal regulatory changes you have to make but ultimately it would be a a philosophical commitment to saying gosh yeah that is a much better way to deliver all sorts of benefits than than what we're doing today there's a concept that you keep on getting back to that that has been extremely influential on me which is that public policy is going to happen there are going to be uh, uh you know decisions made about all sorts of regulatory issues that that 
conservatives can put their fingers in their ear, libertarians can put their fingers in their ear and say, you know, la, 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 this is not going to happen. But at the end of the day, uh, they have failed to actually say that there will be no minimum wage or there will be no labor law or there will be no family benefit or there will be no regulation on gig economies. And so ideally, they should participate. They should bring to bear the instincts, the priorities and the values they have about, say, uh, you know, the nature of family or the value of work or what middle class prosperity looks like and actually participate in the process of public policy. Um, does that argument hold weight with the people that you talk to in in the sort of more legacy areas of the conservative movement, or do, just, does it not really process? I, I think the answer is it, it depends, yeah. um, more so with some than others. But it, it is really interesting the way there's this sort of set of fallback arguments that typically fall under this kind of, quote, public choice umbrella <laughs> that that you see people pull out my Hayek reader. <laughs> yeah, you, you see people Buchanan. You, you see people returning to over and over again. And, and for me, it just sort of signals the point at which the argument has been won, because you could make all sorts of substantive arguments like, well, this is not a problem. You could make a whole bunch of substantive arguments like, well, that policy is not a good one. The last resort is like the, well, government shouldn't do anything and it won't work anyway. Yeah. Right. Like. <laughs> If that's the argument you're you've you've landed on, it's because you've already lost the substantive argument generally. So for one thing, I would say, you know, listen for that argument and, and keep in mind where in, in the, you know, it's kind of like the five stages of denial, like <laughs> where in the stages of the policy debate it's popping up. And then I think the the important thing to recognize about it is, is exactly what you just said. And and you can see it from two angles. One is, hey guys, a lot of public policy is actually really good. Like, no public policy is perfect. You can spend an entire career just pointing out, you know, stupid things that have gone badly in public policy. By the way, you can do the same thing about in, about markets if you yeah. want. <laughs> um, but when you actually ask people, and you, you'll find some, like, hardcore libertarians who I remember I was talking to someone early in the pandemic who was taking the position that, like, no, the government truly should not have a public health function. And, like, we would be <laughs> handling the pandemic better if there were just no government public health role at all. Um, which I was like, you know, honestly, like we could debate what's been going well or not, but that doesn't quite seem right to me. Yeah. Um, but with, with those exceptions, um, people tend to actually admit that most of the public policy we have today, it's good that we have it. And they have reforms and all that, but you said like, well, so wait a minute, should we really just like, should the government not have done public education? Should the government like, you know, should we not have an FDA or an SEC or Social Security or Medicare or a military? Or you start to like run out of things they'd actually get rid of. You, you see this in, in the days when it was very fashionable for Republicans to have like the five, you know, federal departments that they were going to shut down. <laughs> and typically you'd be like, OK, but like what about the things those departments do? And you should be like, well, here's this other department that can do it instead. Right. The number of things you're actually just going to be like. Like, it would really have been better if government had never done this. It's just not that large a list, which tells you that the people making the, well, government shouldn't do this argument back then were wrong. Right. So that's really important to keep in mind. And then the second thing exactly that you put it is that public policy is going to happen. And and the decision not to do something is also a decision and is, in fact, subject to all of the same public choice constraints. Like what cracks me up is the people who are like, well, like government can't get anything right. Like once it runs through the congressional process, it like whatever, whatever. Like now let me tell you about my 300 page tax reform proposal. <laughs> right. If ever there were a subject that was going to be susceptible to all the worst concerns of public choice and capture and this and that and information and it should be the tax code. 
But we have to have a tax code, and we have a tax code today. And so those folks are perfectly happy to talk about all the things we should be doing on tax policy. Um, and and they're right to. We, we need, you know, tax policy is important, as I said earlier. But that holds equally for, for every area where there's already a starting point that itself was created with all these constraints and all these drawbacks. Other things are going to be done because there are problems that government does need to and should address. And so... I highly suggest sitting down and getting to work. <laughs> yeah, it's it's extremely important. And um, it, the, the abolishing departments, you know, you know what measuring contest is 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 one of the funnier things. And and yeah, I mean, it, it seems like conservatives have essentially adopted the role in American life over the last 20 years where they uh, become stalwart champions of the status quo ante of public policy that liberals have designed uh, and nothing more. Like, you know, it's like we must keep that at, at worst or or they just say slash and burn all of it. But it's, you know, the exact system as we have it now is perfect. And anything on top of that is socialism or abolish all the rest of it. It's, it's a fundamentally unsophisticated way of looking at public policy. And um, I think that there's no better example of of how they can sort of psyop themselves into defending uh, very perverse systems than the financialized part of our economy, uh, and specifically the realm of public, uh, private equity, public equity. Um, uh, you guys have done a lot of interesting work on this recently, talking about what the problems with the private equity world are. Walk us through sort of what are the, the broad conclusions that you guys have reached, and, and then we'll get to maybe a, a fun, more particular story about, uh, about uh, some of the response you've gotten. Well, in my mind, private equity is a symptom. So, you know, this is something that we try to emphasize. The concept of private equity, like people should have capital and use it to invest in companies, is obviously unobjectionable. Um, even the idea that you would have firms that raise money from people who have money and aren't sure what to do with it and use it to invest in and build and improve companies, great. It's always existed. We should want it to exist. Um, and there are firms today that do that actually very well. What you also see, though, is this sort of leveraged buyout model that says, um, here are some really good ways to earn a lot of money that don't necessarily create anything of value in the real world. And that's where I think this is such an interesting example, just as the China thing, just as thinking about worker power. Again, it's just it's case studies of things that are actually happening in the world that just just flipping through your 1980 playbook to figure out what you're supposed to say does not get you an answer. Yeah. You actually have to go back and, and apply conservative principles and ask, OK, well, what is going on and how should we think about it? And here you have this kind of fundamentalist dogma that says profit equals value. If someone has earned a lot of money, it must mean they've done something useful, roughly in proportion to the amount of money they earn doing it. And that's just empirically false. I mean, it, it doesn't it doesn't pass like the most basic smell test of examples you can find in the Wall Street Journal every single day. It's also deeply immoral if you think about it. Well, it's immoral because it's wrong, yeah. right? If it were true, yeah. then that would be great. Yeah. Um, but it's it's not true, and and putting it forward as true anyway, then you are correct, is is not the most moral perspective to advance. Um, the the reason, as on many things that I think the the right of center has sort of clung to that myth, is because once you concede it's not true, like it's a it's a very thin um, layer that you're sitting on top of, and a very <laughs> very long drop below it. Yeah. Um, 
especially when you're assessing things like what is going on in, in financial markets. And so um, when you look at what's happening in private equity, you, you see a few things. One is it's by most academic studies, I would say it's been at least a decade since these sorts of practices have even generated better returns for investors than just putting your money in an index fund. So right off the bat, the claim that like this is creating extraordinary value is like, well, like, is it? I don't know. And like more than anyone else, you're taking money from pension, public pension funds that are themselves poorly run. So like, don't tell me like, well, in the free market, we must trust people to, you know, allocate their money well. Um, this is like, you know, the California state board of whatever that's allocating this money. Um, so, so there's that problem. And then there's the problem of just sort of more classically a market failure where, the incentives of people in pursuit of, of their own profit don't necessarily align with what is actually good for the economy, what is good for workers, and, and you know what will lead to healthy long-term investment. And so you see this where private equity funds have raised more and more money. They have record levels of what's called dry powder, which is, which is money that has been given to them to invest that they must now spend. And most of the money they earn is not from actually the success of their investments, it is simply from managing the money. Again, varies by firm, but if you look at like the big public firms, the share of monies that they are earning from fees on the money, not from actual successful investments, is quite high. So if you are in a private equity firm and you have raised, you are saying collectively on a trillion dollars, uh, and the way that you earn money is to, to do something with it, <laughs> you then get a system where they are bidding against each other ever higher prices for existing companies, which then to think that they're going to make money on, they have to put ever more debt onto. So both the prices they're paying and the debt they're loading on are at record levels, even as the returns they are actually generating have fallen. And that's just, that's not a good arrangement. It is not anti-free market to look at that and say, that's not a well-functioning market. And who ends up with the short end of the stick, of course, is workers and communities where these businesses are located. Because... People at private equity firms are, are going to do just fine. I'm, I'm not aware of the, the you know, bad private equity investment that has led to, to personal catastrophe for the, the fund manager um, in the way that it does for, say, workers at a bankrupt company. Um, the people lending the money for the deals, generally, they're going to do fine as well. Um, the pension funds not doing fine, but guess what? You and me, the taxpayers, are actually on the hook. We have to make sure the pensions go out the door regardless of what's in the fund. Um, and they're not actuarially sound to begin with. So No. Well, and interestingly, because they the politicians don't want to fully fund them, they instead give the fund managers a mandate to pursue ever higher returns at ever higher risk that conventional investments can't achieve. And so that further encourages this sort of return chasing. Um, but then on the other end, you have these these workers in their communities who, if the deal works, are no better off. And if the deal does not work, are much worse off. And you used to have a situation where, typically speaking, the owners of managers of businesses were of the same communities. And there were all sorts of, again, institutional checks on people's behaviors and incentives. And when you strip those away... You end up with a situation that might look very efficient from a profit-generating perspective, but that has no correlation to what is actually productive or healthy for the economy in the long run.
and conservatives have to find a way to get comfortable talking about that. Because again, private equity is just a symptom of what is an economy-wide levering up with higher risk for companies, disaggregation of management and control from the communities where these companies operate, and preference for capital returns um, without real concern for the actual outcomes for workers. And none of that's good. Yeah. So I want to ask you about uh, a situation that's come up recently that I think, um, you know, Republicans, conservatives have not really had a good answer to, which is um, BlackRock and their, uh, you know, purchase of homes that's, that's driving up the cost of homes in, in communities across the country. Um, we've, you know, talked to uh, members of Congress kind of behind the scenes, and a lot of them have asked us, like, what should we be, you know, doing about this? Like, what what is the conservative response to this? You know, we don't know. Um, also, Sarab and I don't know. So <laughs> we're we're here with our uh, resident. Yeah, other uh, than smash BlackRock. So. Yeah, yeah. We're here yeah. with our resident uh, expert. I mean, what if if we have any like Republican members of Congress listening to this show? I mean, what would your words of advice be on on what to do? Can you also explain what BlackRock is? Um, because <laughs> even that is like confusing to certain people. Well, BlackRock is an asset manager. So uh, let's say you're a pension fund or, you know, let's say you're a university endowment or just a very rich person. Like you don't put your money in a bank account, right? Um, you don't even put your money like in a brokerage account and buy stocks. Someone has to hold that money and allocate it um, and hopefully in funds that are going to generate returns. And so BlackRock is one of maybe the largest asset manager in the world. They hold these huge pools of assets and have to figure out where to channel them. And and I think one thing that's really important, you know, I said this a little bit in the in the private equity context, but this is another good place to emphasize it is that BlackRock's not evil. Black BlackRock is an asset manager. Their job is to find good returns for the assets that they've been given to manage. And so they go out and look for ways to do that. Um, one very interesting opportunity that they've identified, and this goes back to something we were talking about earlier, is that our housing market is totally broken. And so they thought, huh, well, you know, especially if we can borrow money at extremely low rates that are not available to your typical family thinking about buying a house. And use that to buy assets that we know are supply constrained and we think are going are, are inflation proof because they'll go up if if inflation the, their value will go up if inflation goes up are tied to the health of the overall growth of the economy um and there will always be demand for by by land they don't make it anymore um this is a great thing to do all of these people because we we struggle to think about money as like well like are these like piles of dollar bills flowing around right when what we say when we say BlackRock's buying all these houses what we're essentially saying is all of these actual original savers with these huge piles of assets what are the assets they're going to hold well it actually make a ton of sense for them to hold the ownership of lots of houses levered up with really cheap money um, so that's sort of what's going on if if you look at that and ask like well first of all is it a problem yes. Um, what should we do about it? Well, one thing is if you take away the the inefficiency here on on the supply side, it would not be such a smart investment, right? If BlackRock were doing this, a bunch of builders would turn around and 
build lots more homes, then <laughs> that would that'd be a great solution. This is a case where like we should lean into the fact that markets actually do do good things sometimes, most of the time, I would say. Um, so that's one piece of it. Another piece of it is to recognize that we we have this sort of cheap money problem right now. And, you know, the Federal Reserve has been slashing interest rates and pumping money into the economy for so long. In theory, that's supposed to sort of reach people, lead to increased demand, lead to increased investment to meet that demand. And so then if you were a BlackRock, you'd be like, we got to build some factories, right? Like that, that that's, that's what you'd want to see happening. Another thing that can happen is that it can all go into asset bubbles. And I'm sure it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's a very interesting way to think of what's going with housing. Just think of the houses in a sense like Bitcoin, right? It's just like another thing you could store your wealth in that you think may or may not be a good bet. And you see all of the, you see it with stock prices too. You see all of these prices going up disconnected from what would seem like sensible economic value, which by the way is a problem. If you think about what, are, what do we want financial markets to be doing, we want them to one, be channeling resources to productive uses. And two, we want them to be providing useful price signals. And at the moment, they are instead doing neither. So one area of reform is, is on the supply side in the housing market. And then the other, I would argue, is in the financial sector with what is the relative attractiveness of various things you can do with your capital. Um, how do we make it relatively less attractive to speculate in asset bubbles and relatively more attractive to make productive investments? You can do things on the productive investment more attractive side, and you can do things on the speculative bubble less attractive side. Um, We've obviously done a lot of work at American Compass on, you know, things like when you talk about reshoring, part of that's about bringing, you know, manufacturing and so forth back to the U.S. Most of it equally applies to just making productive investments in the U.S. a smart thing to do. So so that's kind of a whole package. And then our coin flip capitalism work. Um, and most recently, we, we did kind of our set of policy proposals that we call confronting coin flip capitalism kind of goes through what we see as a whole bunch of things you could do. Um, to to make the sort of speculative behavior relatively less attractive. And and the key thing I would emphasize, because they're like, well, isn't that what Elizabeth Warren wants to do, is I think, first of all, yes, progressives are often right about problems in the world, right? Like that is that is a key thing I think progressives bring to to the discussion that conservatives tend to be slow to recognize is, gosh, that that's actually not very good. <laughs> it would be nice if it were better. Um and that is an accurate thing to say about financial markets. So the fact that a progressive is saying it does not make it any less true. Where I think you see progressives go astray typically is that the the response is because it is coming from a place of, of deep skepticism that markets can or should be the solution is like, well, how do we shut this down? Right? Like, what are the set of rules that will just stop these things? And the problem with that is that a lot of the things going on in these markets are good and we want more of them. And it's not about trying to get the market out of this. It's about saying for the market to work well, it needs the right set of rules around it. So what are the kinds of rules you could make that would still support and allow for what I was just describing is great things private equity could be doing while discouraging and, and at least creating a correct sense of the cost of some of the undesirable things. Um, and so some of that's tax policy. Some of that I think is as simple as disclosure. 
Um, we have one proposal for basically saying, look, if you end up in bankruptcy, a lot more money needs to go to workers before anyone else can get their money back. Um, and, and so those are all, again, the kinds of things you have to have market rules about. We're not going to just, it's not just people in the forest. <laughs> um, and we could have much better rules. So there's there's one person in particular who gets very angry when you say all of these things, and, and you've recently got into a little bit of a spat with him, uh, Cliff Asnes, uh, who is a hedge fund manager, correct? Um, walk, walk us through what his uh, his umbrage with you is and, uh, and, and, and the dispute at hand. I believe he called your organization, American Compass, a, a blood and soil organization, which is a very, a very interesting claim to make. I'd, I'd love to hear what he'd say about us in that case. But I'd love uh, to see that in American Compass's Twitter bio uh, <laughs> next time I go on. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, maybe it's a term of art for just people who disagree with him on financial regulation now. Um, you know, look, I think Cliff Asnes is, is, is an example of someone at, uh, at the, the funny runs is called AQR. Um, has certainly, he has been enormously successful um, himself. Um, when you look at AQR's performance, you know, in, in recent years in particular, it, it's sort of been very up and down. And I think the um, the same goes generally speaking. You know, we don't usually focus on this or that fund's performance, but you look at kind of private equity overall or hedge funds overall, and you say like, gosh, guys, it it, it looks a little bit random. I mean, private equity not only is not delivering much better returns or arguably worse returns if you benchmark it right than public markets, but you look at predictors of a fund's success and you go, you look at, well, what were the most successful funds? And then the firm launches its next fund. Not only is there n no correlation, but in fact, the, 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 the firms that had the really good previous fund are slightly more likely to have a really bad next fund. And so you just look at that and you say like, like, well, can we be honest about like what's going on here? And and you see the same thing with hedge funds where, yeah, in, in various periods, various funds are hugely successful. And yet, if you look over the last 15 years, um, they have woefully underperformed even just kind of your typical like stocks and bonds conservative fund. And then the premise is like, well, but, you, but you're hedging your risk. And then, you know, the COVID crash hits and like the hedge funds all lost lots of money. You're like, well, what? Again, what is going on here? And so the um, the the point that I had made was that AQR actually does very good academic research and had published a really good paper on the poor performance of private equity. And I just, I said, like, this is an especially good paper to look at. To be honest, it's a little funny that AQR, which I don't think has been very good at, at delivering results to investors, seems to be very good at pointing out others who have not been <laughs> delivering very good results to investors. Um, and and I guess Cliff took umbrage both at um, what he saw as an unfair characterization of, of his fund's performance. Uh, and then underneath it, I think certainly was um, frustration at kind of the, the general argument that we're advancing. Um, but, you know, look, for me, what's telling is he didn't actually offer a response. I mean, the, the the thread goes on for a while and has a lot of very unkind things in it, but but they're just they're just name calling. There's no actual here's something you get wrong, here's a data point, here's an example. And you know, we 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 would love to kind of discuss the actual substance of it with with anyone including him. When when you see that kind of reaction, it it tends to suggest both that you maybe you have landed on something that kind of matters and and maybe the rebuttal isn't as easy as as the other side might like it to be 
Well, and, and he's particularly interesting because he has deep ties to the institutional conservative movement in Washington. He endows a chair at uh, the American Enterprise Institute, which is currently held by Joan Goldberg. Um, zooming out, uh, American Compass has been around for a year. Your work has been around for longer than that. Uh, how are you thinking about the retrospective on the reaction from the institutional conservative movement, from Republicans in Washington, people on the Hill? Uh has it been equal hostility across the board, like what you see from Cliff Asnes, or are, are there signs of, of more warm reception that, that, that may give hope? Well, generally speaking, I'd say we've been very pleased with the reception. And, and to some extent, that goes to the fact that we've you know, found a lot of points of disagreement and, and, in, and had debates. Um, but ultimately, that I think the, the right of center has proved itself to be a a relatively welcoming and flexible ecosystem, at least in recognizing that these debates do need to take place. And, you know, this is something you contrast with the left of center. And and I don't think this is me sort of, you know, being being partisan. People on, on the left always say, oh, kind of like that they're jealous that we seem to really be able to, you know, interested in hashing these things out on the right of center, whereas in the left center, there's a very like, this this is this is the party line. Um, and and those who diverge, especially on some of the more woke things, um, are, that, that's not an acceptable discussion to have. Um, and so, you know, I think if you look at what we've been able to do over the first year, one of the things that we're most proud of is just the number of organizations and scholars we've been able to engage with, whether that's partnering on events, um, having them write for us, us write for them. Um, th there are examples here and there that one will find of people who seem to be rude or, or hostile about it. But among other things, I, I just, I don't think that plays well. I, I don't think it's it's gone well for them. I, I don't think it has advanced the argument they want to be advancing. And so, you know, I'm very proud of of what we kind of put out at the beginning, which looks a little corny, but we, we actually return to a lot, which is you know, along with our mission statement, the statement of principles, which basically comes down to intellectual combat combined with personal civility, that that we know that what we are doing is having fights about a lot of deeply held views, and that's often uncomfortable, and there are going to be people who don't like that. But it's important. It has to happen. And you can do it in a way that doesn't get personal. And we can all recognize that, among other things, no one's right about anything. And cons the conservatism that we all care about will emerge stronger through the exercise. And by and large, that is, you know, sort of how I think people have, have approached us. Um, I certainly feel like we are a, a, a valued member of, um, of, of the world that's engaged in these debates. And, um, and, and our hope is that we can keep building on that. What does victory look like for American Compass's mission in ten years? What what is the the status quo uh, in the in the right of center ecosystem? Well, victory is that we're gone in ten years. I mean, one thing that I emphasize is is our project is not to build another marble building that's bigger than everybody else's marble building. Um, I like to think that's sort of consistent with a a conservative ethos that says, um, you know, you want to see institutions evolve over time. And, you know, as I said, I think a lot of these mainstream right center institutions, among other things, have a lot of just fantastic people at them, but they also have infrastructure that's been built up over very long periods of time. Um, and 
I just think there were a lot of dogmas that people got comfortable with or didn't really think about or found that it would be difficult to challenge and, and easier to just work from. And our goal is to actually force a reevaluation of those. Um, and to the extent that people do engage in that process, which I think they are, these things take time, um, then the ideal outcome would be that you have a right of center that is working from this new default premise that is our mission statement, that um, that family, community, and industry are really central to the nation's liberty and prosperity. And if if right-of-center policymakers are thinking in those terms uh, and, and the scholars at think tanks are, you know, again, no one's going to agree on everything, but are, are using that seriously as they think about what they want to be doing, uh, then then we will feel like we've we've accomplished what we set out to do. And hopefully you are successful. Um, thank you for coming on the podcast, Oren. We're huge admirers of everything you guys do at American Compass. There's links to stuff on the website all over ours. Um, and uh, we would really encourage people to check out everything that you guys are doing. Is there anything you want to draw people's attention to, any initiatives that you guys have coming up, and where can they learn more about what you're doing? Well, we just talked about a lot of, of the stuff that we've just been doing. Um, you know, in the fall, we're we're really focusing in on workers' interests. What what workers actually say they want out of their jobs, out of the workplace, out of you know a, a labor organization that could represent them. Um, and and my hope is that you know that will bring to the fore a lot of things that neither the professional left of center class or professional right of center class has particularly wanted to ask about, frankly. And uh, so, so look forward to that. It's all at AmericanCompass.org. Thanks for being on the podcast. Over. Thanks for having me. This week, when we round up a piece that we have on AmCanon, I wanted to talk about Mike Anton's book, The Stakes, which is on AmCanon. It's a fantastic read. Uh, many of you probably know Michael Anton for his work that he's done with the Claremont Institute, specifically writing a piece in 2016 called The Flight 93 Election that was considered the, the intellectual case for Trumpism. Uh, Professor Anton is a friend, uh, and he's one of the most brilliant people in American life. Uh, he uh, is a purveyor of many black pills, so fair warning, but um, it's it's always valuable to read. And the stakes is is basically a, a regime analysis of the country we live in and where it's going. And the first chapter and the reason it's on it on my mind is actually about California, the state that Mike Anton grew up in, the state that he loves and the state that has declined precipitously over the last 40 to 50 years as from what was essentially a middle class paradise, the paragon of American life, uh, a place where people could raise families where there was great material prosperity in a land touched by God's natural beauty um, into a dystopian hellhole that we find ourselves in now. Uh, and that is the destiny of America if we don't uh, turn it around. And that really is the stakes. And it's funny, I I read this book. I've read a lot of Anton's writing. I've read a lot of Californians who are sometimes the most vigorous, you know, people who shake you by the shoulders to tell you what time it is. And I never really kind of understood why they, California was such a big deal. You know, they would they would always make such a big deal out of it. And I'd be like, why, why are you staying to be ruled by these demented people? 
And then I just spent three and a half weeks in California, in part doing the Publius Fellowship with the Claremont Institute and then um, some travel for American Moment. And uh, I get it now. <laughs> 82 high, 78 low, dry and sunny every single day, uh, surrounded by verdant greenery everywhere and a lot of material prosperity. We have to take it back. Uh, and we will. <laughs> we will reconquer California one day. And so, uh, but understanding its decline is, I think, very important for any of us who are interested in preventing the broader decline of the United States. And so I highly recommend you guys check it out. I think the microcosm of the California issue as a whole is happening across the country in cities. Um, it's, and cities are definitely, you know, not touched by uh you know god's natural beauty because they're like concrete dystopian <laughs> you know sodomask <laughs> crap holes but um it didn't have to be this way it doesn't have um to be this way. uh yeah i th- i i think you know there's this kind of thing happening where republicans are kind of waking up to this moment that oh we need to take cities back and the way that we're going to do it is carbon tax credits <laughs> it's like <laughs> nope that's ridiculous yeah. uh we definitely should not do it that way um i the, i i hesitate to say like the only way we're gonna take it back is by force but it 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 certainly has to be there has to be a breaking point where we say that the the way that california as a whole and you know cities are operating right now is unsus- unsustainable and unacceptable um you know i mean take any stroll through any neighborhood here in washington dc i mean even last night up in logan circle um outside a relatively nice restaurant uh frequented by the likes of joe biden and chuck schumer uh there was a a a shooting you know into uh, people shooting out of the car uh my walk to the office Every morning here on Capitol Hill, I, I I can't walk by I can't walk by without someone either begging me for money or ODing in the park in front of me. I mean the the situation as it stands is unacceptable, and the way that we're gonna win these places back is to not you know capitulate to the definitions um, and and to the words and the cultural movements of the left. It's gonna be to say enough is enough. We won't accept this anymore. Yeah, it probably looks more like Rudy Giuliani's mayoralty in New York when he when he came into power there. Um, yeah, pre hair dye melting. Right. Yeah, yeah. it's uh, it, you have to reimpose order, uh, and any conservative that doesn't make the restoration of order front and center in everything they do politically doesn't realize what's happening um and uh it's 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 something that is absolutely necessary and uh i spent a day in la on my way back out here and and that's a place that needs order restored i mean talk about uh, a city of contradictions i mean it's it's i did a tweet thread about this but it's just you know glitzy high rises next to dilapidated shacks you know uh, tesla model s's driving by homeless people that are drug addicted a lot of very attractive people who the second they open their mouth you want to shove a rusty nail into your eardrum it's it is a land of contradictions and uh and 
there's no reason to think that such a beautiful place should be ruled by such terrible people. So we will take it back uh, in due course. But thank you guys for listening to this uh, week's episode of Moment of Truth. As always, please make sure to rate and review the podcast. If you write a review with five stars uh, in it, uh, we will uh, it, we will answer any question you put in that review. And uh, don't forget to go to AmericanMoment.org to see everything else we have cooking and follow us on social media. Thank you guys and have a great week. Moment of Truth is an American Moment Studios production filmed at the Conservative Partnership Center. Our podcast is produced and edited by Jake Mercier and Jared Cummings. Our intro music is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenich. Don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms, and you can go to AmericanMoment.org to learn more.